0: Welcome back to the Zach Evans Podcast. Exciting announcement. We just hit 5,000 downloads. Super exciting, and I've kind of been tracking that one for a while and was excited to finally hit it, which we did this past weekend. 5,000 downloads, and uh, just really awesome. And I'm so thankful for everyone who listens. And really, depending on how you count it, it could actually be much more than that. That's kind of a conservative number. Um, On Apple alone, I think, we're at uh, over 6,000 plays, which is a little different than downloads. Um, So depending on how you count it, it could be more than that, but kind of the conservative number is 5,000 downloads. And so just super grateful, super appreciative, and um, it's just fun to know that the Holy Spirit is using this to be a blessing to people. If you're new, uh, please give us five stars and make sure that you're following the podcast. Leave a review if you can. Take a few minutes to do that. Would really, really appreciate that. This episode, we're going to have our next Q&A. Now, this one was not announced. Normally, we put that out of our social media and let you ask questions because this kind of happened impromptu. So we did a live Q&A. So this is actually a recording of a Q&A that happened live. And, uh, In it, we answered three questions, and these are three interesting questions, two of them similar, one of them very different, but it really turned into what I think is a pretty profitable time, because we hit on a lot of different things in answering these questions. So the first question, this is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a weird one in a way, uh, but one that I've heard before, it's, do you think the Antichrist could possibly be gay? Now, honestly, I you know I didn't know how to react to that question at first, and you'll hear that in the recording. Um, but there's a, a reason why someone would ask that. Uh, there's a Bible verse in Daniel that we'll talk about that some, I would say, more you know modern Christians reading it would think that maybe that's what it means. And so uh, we answer that question. The second question is, do you see America in Bible prophecy? And I'll totally add a caveat here, which is I'm not a Bible prophecy expert. There's people who have studied that, I mean, for like their whole lives. I'm not one of those people. But um, I do have a layman's... I'm a pastor, but you know what I mean. I have a layman's education, I guess you'd say, in prophecy compared to many other people in my profession. But I, I try to do the best I can to explain, I think, the best way to think about that question, and maybe the bigger question outside of that. But... It's a question a lot of people are asking right now, because the world is just absolutely insane. And then number three is, this is going to sound counterintuitive, it's also going to sound like the answer to this is as short as no, but I think you'll be surprised by the answer. The question is, is it actually easier to be a Christian in a divided society? Now that's an interesting question, and um, I, I think you'll find the answer enlightening. So we cover a lot of things inside of those three questions and we kind of just, instead of just answering them in a short manner, we kind of expand on the question and try to figure some things out. So I think it'll be enlightening to you and helpful and so we'll go into this next volume of Q&A and again, thank you so much for 5,000 downloads, enjoy. If you have a
1: question that I could answer, it'd be Um, interesting to see if you have any questions. So it could be a Bible question, it could be a social question, cultural question, uh, personal question, um, a live live Q&A. So a good question sounds something like uh, what do you think about fill in the blank? What would you do if fill in the blank? Um, That type of thing. What does the Bible mean when it says fill in the blank? Those types of questions. So uh, I'll throw it out there to you, put you on the spot. Don't be shy or brave. There are such things as stupid questions. Don't believe anybody who says otherwise. But you guys are incapable of those. So um, does anybody have a question or a curiosity or something of interest? It might not even be something that you're interested in, like, actually, like, could you tell me exactly what to do in this situation? It could be, like, could you lend your perspective on this thing? It could be literally anything. Does anybody have one? Mr. Josh? Can you lend your perspective on, do you think the Antichrist will be gay? Okay, so because it says, it says so the question was, this will never make the podcast. Uh, <laughs> this is not going on the podcast. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and d- delete. Uh, will the Antichrist be gay? So I know the reason that you're asking that is because the Bible says that he will not regard the desire of women, right? So that's an interesting phrase. I don't think that it means that he will be gay. I think it has something to do with his um, more like political relationship, governmental relationship with women, right? So he's not going to regard their desires. I don't think it means that he's not going to regard a desire for women personally. I think it means that he's not going to regard the desires of women, right? I think that's the idea. I think most commentators agree. However, most commentators didn't live in a time when homosexual practice was so rampant. So obviously, we can see this with the establishment of Israel in 1948, how that changed biblical commentary forever. So if you go back and you read pre-1948 biblical commentaries on prophecy, you're gonna see a lot of different takes on Israel. You're gonna see a lot of spiritualization of Israel, that the church is Israel because there was no literal Israel. Well. When Israel was reestablished as a country in 1948, that changed the way that we interpret the Bible. And that's very interesting. And that just makes sense. I mean, same thing when Jesus just appeared in history, which I've made the case that the disciples didn't see that coming, I've made the case that Satan himself did not see that coming. He was anticipating ready to step in as the Antichrist in that moment, and Jesus Christ came in. It's the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's a reason. So it was literally the major plot twist in history is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that had to change the way the disciples interpreted the Bible. So the question is could the rampant uh, spread of homosexuality, specifically in the Western world, because it's not necessarily a worldwide phenomenon, could that, should that change the way that we interpret phrases like we find, I believe, it's in Daniel, where it says that he will not regard the desire of women? At this moment, I don't think so. I think, for example, it might mean something like, um, like similar to what the CCP has done in China. So every woman desires to have children. Almost almost every woman desires to have children. And almost every woman desires to have multiple children. But the government had for a long time a one child policy. You can only have one child. And we see that a lot of the things that Satan does the purpose of them is to sterilize essentially. Is to prevent life, to kill, and then you kind of have like the preemptive killing. Uh, where you 're just preventing life from taking place, and obviously the sinister spirit behind a lot of the LGBTQ and trans movement, the purpose of it is just that, and so it could be again that that is really the animating spirit of that idea. It is not that he himself is uh, is homosexual could mean that um, i don 't believe that i don 't I think that might conflict with other things said about him, uh, like him being a great man of war and that and that type of thing, although that's not entirely the case. I mean, there was a football coach who just came out, the first, I think, openly gay football coach for the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, you know, he's rough-and-tumble guy or whatever, and he's gay. So I'm not saying it's not possible. We have one of the highest military officers in the land is transgender, um, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, but... I don't think that's what it means. I think generally it's been accepted that it means that in regards to women, he doesn't care about their desires. So, your sons are going to serve me. I don't care what desires you have for your sons and for your children. They serve me. They're properties of the state. No, no, no. You can't have multiple kids. You can have one kid. Or you can't have any kids or whatever. I think it has to do with his tyrannical approach to dealing with the desires of women. And we already see that, right? You see that in the CCP. You're even seeing it here in America with LGBTQ rights, transgender rights. I think it's that same animating spirit that will be very, very present in the Antichrist. I think that's my answer. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, delete. <laughs> oh, well. Um, all right, what's next? That was a good one. I'm not the prophecy king. I will totally admit that. Prophecy is not my, like, stick, you know. So if uh, I'm more philosophy than prophecy. So my prophecy might be a little weak. So you might find somebody that totally disagrees with me, and they would probably be more well-studied than me. So just throw that out there. All right, what's next? Do you see the United States in the Bible? So another prophecy question. Yeah, I know, I know. No, it's fine. Um... (laughs) This was a horrible mistake. Um... (laughs) So some people see it as the leopard. Right, the spotted, the spotted leopard, um, again in Daniel. Um, I've, heard a, I've heard an explanation that America is Babylon um, in some of the, uh, the major prophets' prophecies. Um, I don't know. That's the, the shortest answer. I don't know. I will say this, that the biblical prophecy is not American-centric. And I think that's the mistake that we make. As we approach the Bible... Looking for America and looking for an emphasis on America because of our own point of view that we are the greatest country in the earth or whatever. But the the Bible is not, you know, Americentric at all. It's 100%, you know, believer centric and uh, Israelite centric. So it's about Israel. And if you read Revelation, for example, and you read the prophets, it's all about the Middle East. It's all about the Middle East. And I believe that. Again, and it's really amazing when you think about the fact that the Middle East is kind of the axis on which the world turns. So no, they're not the greatest country, they're not the most powerful country, militarily or whatever. But almost every issue that we have like, closely revolves around them. It's very fascinating. Again, why is the world so captivated with a nation like Israel, small country, like, like who cares, right? But everyone is concerned about Israel. So America has taken the stance, for example, that we are, you know, pro-Israel. Even even Joe Biden, his relationship has been vocally pro-Israel. Well, like, why is it we don't say that about any other country? We don't get up and say, hey, listen, you know, we're we're pro-Austria. You know, we just want to strengthen our ties with Austria. Austria's like sweet, you know. But Israel, there's a focus on Israel, and I think that's there's something about that. There's there's a gravity about the Middle East, and I think you see that. The reason that you see that in reality in the world today is because there's something about that even that emanates obviously from its origin in history and from the scriptures, the spiritual battle that's going on. So it's, it is a hub, right? The, the Middle East is a hub of a lot of activity, spiritual and otherwise. For example, um, it's kind of a different illustration, but I heard a preacher talking about um, who was it? I forget. He was talking about New York City and he said New York City is one of the most spiritually rich cities in the entire world. And what he explained what he meant. He didn't mean that it's like, you know, the bastion of righteousness. What he meant was there's a lot of spiritual activity going on in New York. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, of course there is, right? The devil has to concentrate his efforts. His resources are limited. And so he devotes a lot of effort into these high traffic areas. Washington, D.C. would be another one, obviously. Well, I mean, the Middle East is obviously... I would say, number one on that list. There's a lot going on over there. So, prophecy is always you know, focused on Israel, not America. So you see you know, Gog, Magog, armies of the north, Babylon, we have all of these kind of terms and we're kind of sorting out who's who. I think it's most likely, <coughs> it, the fact that we have to ask the question, I think is the answer. Do you see America and profit? It's like, well, you know, you think about the fact that if America is the end all, be all, and, and well, then yeah, we'd probably see it. Um, it. People say things like, well, it means that America won't be around, or, eh, I mean, why, why would it? Why would it mean that? Again, there's a, there's a bias in the question. There's an American bias in the question. Like we're obviously so important, so we have to be mentioned. It's like, I don't know. So we're already seeing the decentralization of globalism, right? So. The idea for, you know, uh, and, and this is very interesting in relation to prophecy as well, but so there's been a an effort to form kind of a globalist union for a really, really long time. And it's not covert. It's not, no one's trying to hide it. Like, it's right there on the top shelf. And there's even many Christians and Christian leaders who believe that that was a, 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 good, a good thing. But we're seeing that splinter apart. So instead of there being kind of a, I don't want to say one world government, it's not that. It's more like democratic principles being shared around the globe, which is the reason why, for example, and it's actually founded on Christian presuppositions, that we would go into Iraq or Afghanistan and try to liberate them and give them a liberal democracy, right? It's like, what, what, that's kind of a crazy thing. They'd be like you going into your neighbor's house you know, and cleaning out their fridge and putting healthy food in there. You know? It's just like, I mean, you're still breaking and entering. You know? um, the question is like, why do we feel like the need to do that? It's because we believe that these things are self-evidently good for everyone. And that's a Christian presupposition, right? That everyone wants these basic human things. So we go and we get rid of despots and we put in a new government and we allow them to vote, assuming that they want what we want. But they don't. They don't want what we want. Afghanistan didn't want what we want. Iraq doesn't want what we want. And only a Christian would think that way. Only a Christian would think well everyone obviously wants the Christianized version of diplomacy. Well that's that's obviously obviously wrong. So we have tried that, and it's failed. And now you see the tone shift even in American politics where on the conservative side, for example, there is an emphasis now on American interests first. And that was really started by Trump. So Trump's talking about endless wars, needless wars. Why are we doing all this? You know, why are we fighting this place and that place? And every war is now the new Vietnam. The pulling out of Afghanistan was a complete disaster and whatever. Okay, so put the politics aside. The idea is just kind of from a 30,000 foot point of view is well why are we interested in Russia and Ukraine what's the american interest and the mainstream conservative view now is that we shouldn't be interested we should be dispassionate okay now regardless of what you think about that there's a reason for that what i mean is that 20 years ago the vast majority of americans would have not have thought that way they would have thought we need to go th- we need to spread diplomacy that, that's the American mandate. That's very interesting that that has changed. Okay, so that is an expression that this uh, globalist endeavor is failing, has failed. People know that it's failing. And if America is resorting to nationalism, it means that other countries will essentially follow suit. So Brexit is another good example, right? So people viewed the European Union as a, uh, kind of a, a reference point for what the one world government might look like. Okay, well now you have uh, Brexit taking place where they're like, we want to be a part of the European Union. It's like, what is that? Okay, that's an expression of the same exact thing. Globalism has failed. This, We're all under the same banner has failed. Uh, Italy, same thing, their new president who was elected by their standards by a landslide she came out and she said, forget the WHO, forget the World Economic Forum, all you guys, whatever, Italy first, Italy first, Italy first. We are Christians. There's only two genders. Like, she's like, the globalist people, you know, they can go kick rocks. This is about Italy. We're taking care of ourselves. So that is the pervasive feeling now. And then what you have with the secondary tier countries is you have them teaming up locally with the powerful countries around them. Right? And this is what China has been doing. So China been making inroads in Africa and, of course, in Southeast Asia. So what, what China is doing is they're establishing local relationships and, you know, beneficial ones and taking care of those countries. They're filling that void, which is what a lot of the more hawkish uh, military types were concerned about. Well, if you step away, who steps in? And that's what's happening. So what I'm saying is that the world's being rearranged right now um, in a very interesting way and it's hard to know exactly what that's gonna look like and how it relates to biblical prophecy. So where does America stand in prophecy kind of is a question inside of the bigger question which is what do we do about the fact that globalism has failed and now you have nationalism and like local national tribalism that's taking over in America and you have a more decentralized world. Right, so what does that look like? Well that's not the uh, that's not what we see in Revelation, right? People thought, like, for example, you had George H.W. Bush talking to America, talking about, using the phrase, we need a new world order. You've heard that, new world order. That phrase is going to be out of vocabulary very soon. And when people do use it, it'll be in a more nuanced way. That referred to a specific idea, which was the spread of liberal democracy and whatever else is underneath that, right? All across the globe. Now that's shot that's shot, that idea is gone, it's toast. So it's gonna be interesting to see the way the world kinda shakes itself out, right? Because again, and I've made this case before, um, Americans are scared to death of China when China is an absolute hot mess. Economically, socially, they have a literal population collapse coming, Um, their economy's a farce, Um, their debt to income ratio is absolutely insane. The one-child policy has literally destroyed their country. So China's time is, is ticking. Okay, what's gonna happen, which everybody's assuming, right, China's the next big superpower and that kind of... It's like, wait a second. China literally is not going to survive this generation. They can't. Their population is collapsing. You don't have people, you don't have a country. What's gonna happen to their military? And they don't have immigration? The people are not flooding across the borders into China like they're flooding across the borders into America. So we have the same birth rate problem, but we have an interesting dynamic, which is we have a lot of people coming into our country. And the countries that are receiving immigrants, right, so their demographics are going to be much more uh, beneficial long-term than the countries that don't have any immigration like China. So what's going to happen with our interpretation of biblical prophecy when China falls off the map? What's going to happen then? Because everybody just assumes China's going to take over the world. It's like, I'm not so sure. I'm not in that camp at all. Um, I think the CCP wants you to believe that, and they've been telling you that for a really long time. And you're buying their hype that's published by them. But you actually look at the data, look at the information, they're in big trouble. So what I'm saying is we're in the midst of a global shakeup that most people aren't aware of and can't understand. They're operating on old notions from the 80s and 90s. The world's a completely different place. Um, it's not just COVID, it was happening before that as well. Deglobalization, nationalism, local kind of national tribalism, and how that's going to interpret, how that's going to lend itself to our interpretation of biblical prophecy is going to be very interesting to see. Because how do you go from globalism to local nationalism back to one world, right? It can totally happen, but it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that works.
0: it's easy to be a Christian, I think, in the culture that
1: we're in right now. And, um, it is easy. Maybe give your easier than it was. On
0: that. How it's, it's different
1: than <coughs> when we were just <coughs> So we, we were talking about this because, so the question is, or the statement is, is it easier to be a Christian now than it was years ago? So it's going to seem counterintuitive, but I believe the answer is yes. So the reason for that, the way this uh, discussion came up is before vacation Bible school. Um, well, I was I was on Instagram, looking at just reels and people's stories or whatever, and I noticed that uh, Mackenzie, Emma, and who's the other one? Madison, went to Starbucks before vacation Bible school and they had a Bible study. So they're sitting inside Starbucks at the table. They've got their little juice drinks because they don't drink coffee. It's like. You can get Juicy Juice at Kroger. You know, like, what are you paying five bucks for juice for? But they're sitting there, and uh, they have their Bibles open. They got their pens out, like, highlighters, like, you know, all this stuff. Reading their Bible in the middle of Starbucks. And obviously something as a pastor and youth pastor just stood up in me and went, let's stink and go, you know. I love that. I told Sarah, I was like, you never would have caught us dead doing that. Like, no way. Like, we would never do that. And the reason why was because no one really did stuff like that. So yeah, we're majority Christian, right? Church attendance was still you know, decent or, or whatever, but we did not vocalize and we did not stand out. The reason didn't stand out is because everyone's standing in the mushy middle with you. So everybody can blend in. And you just assume, well, I mean, everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody's a Christian. And so everybody can just hide in the crowd. And so the thing about that is it gave the illusion of peace and stability and a stable Christian foundation, right? Which is there's no tumult, right? There's no major division. And the major divisions are mainly political and and whatever. No one had to really stand out. You didn't have to. And there wasn't a culture in America that rewarded standing out. And that almost made standing out normal. What's happened in our generation is that's completely different. So now, um, instead of everyone running to the middle, uh, the middle has been, I made this case in 2015. I said that this would happen. You can go back and listen to that sermon. That people in that time, this is pre-Trump, run to the mushy middle for safety so they don't have to take a position. What's going to happen is there's going to be an involuntary separation, I said, that's going to pull people out of the mushy middle and make people take a stand on one side or the other. So we see that idea in Scripture. There's a division, right? Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Talk about dividing people from their families, right? So we talk about the division of the sheep and the goats, the tares and the wheat. You see that, that everything's all together, mingled together, right? God shows up, and what happens? This thing goes over here, and this thing goes over here. And then God makes a judgment based on the relationship between one and the other. So for example, so think about Sodom and Gomorrah. So God comes down to see. It's a picture of the incarnation. He comes down to see so that he can properly judge. He sends physical manifestations of angels to go check out what's going on. And then what happens? All right, he sorts the tares from the wheat. He takes the wheat out. He gathers the wheat. That's Lot and his family. And then he burns the tares. But the separation happened first. It's separation, judgment. That's what it is. Separation, judgment. And God judges based on how many sheep do I have and how many goats do I have. How much wheat do I have and how many tares do I have. And God makes the judgment based on that relationship. So, for example, eventually the world got to such a terrible place that God said, I'm going to destroy the entire thing. I'm going to flood the whole entire earth. Okay? It took one guy to save him. One guy. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Just Noah. And Noah, because of the dominion that he has over his house, he saved his household. Much like Lot saved his household. Had nothing to do with his wife. Had nothing to do with his two daughters. Right? Those under his authority were, you know, saved. They were, they were delivered. So same thing with, with Noah. So the idea is that God separated Noah, and then he judged everyone else. But the separation happened first. The separation always happens first. So everybody's in the middle. Everybody's all together. There's no distinction. God comes down, splits it in two, and then looks at it and goes, Do I have enough righteous to save the thing? That's the question. How many righteous are there? If there's enough, the thing is saved. If there's not enough, the thing is lost. It's pretty simple, and it makes sense. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. So what I said in 2015 is that that was going to happen here. And this was pre-Trump. Trump Trump wasn't even running for president. His name wasn't even in the hat, uh, I I don't believe. And um, I preached a sermon called The Great Separation, The Great Falling Away, or The Next Great Awakening the great separation, the great falling away, or the next great awakening. And the case I made is that a separation is coming where something is going to happen. Never could have predicted COVID, but something is going to happen to essentially separate everybody into their constituent parts. And then God is going to judge and say, okay, I don't have any righteous left. Too many people have fallen away. The judgment of God falls. And America as we know it is essentially done. Right? So he that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. When the Holy Spirit is standing in the gap, and he does that through believers, <laughs> right? So that's the vessel. We stand in the gap. Well, when there's no believers who stand in the gap, the judgment of God comes. He that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So, uh, for example, uh, Jesus says that, uh, that those times will not come until there be a great falling away. So, same exact thing, which is there's the falling away of the righteous that leads to the judgment of the wicked. So I think where we're at right now is that because the separation has already happened, no one's in the mushy middle, right? Everybody's either extreme. We even talk like that, right? Radical, crazy, insane. We use extreme language. We used to say moral majority. That's the mushy middle. That's how we used to talk politically. Moral majority, moderate. It's like that's the mushy middle world. We don't live in that world anymore. The world's gone. So what that means is that these kids, Gen Z, has grown up in a world that's already divided. It's already split up. There's no middle for them to stand in. And ironically, what we thought would happen is that all of them will buy into the crazy stuff. But that's not what's happening. It's not what's happening. As much as curmudgeony conservatives want that to be the case, that's not what's happening. So there are many young people who are looking at that going, uh, no. And the thing is, the alternative is not the mushy middle because it doesn't exist. The alternative is the other stance. So they're more vocal. They're more brave. They're more courageous because we're already split up. So I make the case that it is easier, actually, to stand up for what you believe in this generation than it has been in previous generations because the division has already happened. It's difficult to stand in the middle during the division because you you don't want to appear. You feel like everything's like the the uh, the extremes are marginal. They're not anymore. It's literally like, there's a quote in Star Wars where Anakin says, <laughs> don't laugh, Anakin says, uh, uh, you're either with me or against me. And Obi-Wan <laughs> says, Obi-Wan says, only a Sith deals in absolutes. And that's like a turning point for Anakin, right? Okay, well, what he's I think the idea there is that only a Sith would... Only evil would dare to assume the rights of divinity. I think that's the idea. Only someone who is evil would assume to have the power and authority to literally divide everyone into two camps, those who are for me and those who are against me. That is the right of God and God alone. And the idea there, I think, in that scene is that only the evil usurps that ability. So it's not saying that God is a Sith for taking on that privilege. It's that, it's that only God can do that and only an evil person who's given themselves over to the darkness, let's say, would assume that right for themselves. So it is an expression of divinity to say, and Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, he that standeth not with me is against me. He also said, he that is not against us is for us. That's an interesting part that we never talk about. But Jesus made that same ultimatum. Why? Because he's God, that's why. And I think in our generation, it's easier than it's ever been to stand up really for what you actually believe. Because if you don't want to believe it, the other side will readily accept you, open you with welcome arms, and validate you socially instantly. You can have that whenever you want. So anytime you want instant social validation, you just come out. Just come out. Um, I've made the case, I put the quote out on, on Facebook. But we talked about this before in that when we talked about uh, acceptance. But um, basically, the, the modern idea of professing yourself to be something that you feel like you are an outward profession of an inward belief, right, that then makes you acceptable and righteous and justified in the eyes of everyone, that's what you believe should happen, is basically a perversion of the Christian idea of justification by faith. That's all it is. Without the legacy of Christianity, no one would believe that. It is you stealing, you pilfering from the leg- legacy of Christianity just say, you know that idea that, that you can believe something in your heart and it transforms you and it makes you into something new, a new creature. Remember that? Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And the idea that you are then validated before God. Well, there is no God. There's only culture, right? There's only the, the, the mass personification of, of human culture that we've replaced God with. So, so there's just that. But we want to take the same exact idea And I want to believe something in my heart that transforms me into a new creature. And I want to be validated by everybody and stamped as righteous. It's literally just a repackaging of Christianity. That's literally all it is. It's Christianity. It's it's a perversion of Christianity by another name. That's all it is. So what that shows is that our culture understands how important these ideas are. They can't escape them. They can't. They can't run away from these ideas. They're just repackaging them. So I think that um, I have seen pastoring different generations of young people, about three generations of young people. I've seen the difference between them. And this generation right now is the one. I've said this. I've said that there was a generation who loved themselves primarily, and that was kind of the first group that I worked with. The second group that I work with is not true of all of them. They love church. They love preaching. They love this church. They love me. They love preacher. This next group, they love Jesus. It's more specific. They love Him. And I was in the group that loved themselves. <laughs> and you've got to graduate out of that. Um, the idea of just loving the church and loving the preaching and loving the pastor is, a, is kind of a form of Christian secularism. Right? Supergian, when you apply it to preachers, he would call it ministerialization, which is the idea that you're just a professional Christian. That's what you are. Um, and that's, that's, that's right. That's exactly right. But this, the, these kids love Jesus. And they see him as the answer to those other things. So, the separation has happened, and that's what everybody's reacting to. Oh, no! Oh no! It's like, listen, this is what always happens either before an awakening or a falling away. And your job and my job is to stand firm and stand in the gap, make up the hedge, do what's right, and not fall away. That's our job. And we leave the, the judgment to Him. So it's amazing how downtrodden most Christians are. Ironically, most of the successful pastors that I know and have observed and listened to and spoken to, they're weirdly optimistic. Now, the lay people aren't. The people in the church aren't.
0: It's over! It's over! It's the end of the world!
1: It's like, leave that to God. Let him decide. He'll he'll get that sorted out, right? Um, That's the easy conclusion to make wow, that was aggressive. (laughs) That's the easy conclusion to make. And I would say that although that's, you're not wrong that we're in jeopardy of that. We certainly are. But what I mean is that uh, I read a book called um, Redemptive Reversals, I think. And this guy basically made the case that in the Bible, irony is a major theme. The most ironic thing usually happens and that God works through irony. It was very interesting. And we've all noticed that kind of thing before, right? But he really shows how pervasive it is in Scripture. Like, for example, the resurrection is is proof of that. It's like, ah, killed you. She's like, ah, you did, but I'm coming back. Like, that's extremely ironic. And God works through that. He goes all the way back to Genesis to show that. And I think the most ironic thing that could happen right now is not that you know the world ends and you know we're visited by alien aircraft and like you know everything just slides off into oblivion the most ironic thing would be if we have a revival that would be the most ironic thing and uh, it's funny i've heard the term great awakening more post-covid than i ever heard before it i think the here's where i think the, the line is the line is not this is my personal feeling i don't believe the line is between you know nuclear bombs and you know, end of the world and whatever, and awakening. I, I, don't, I don't really think that that's where we're at, because I think we've seen the, the sorting out. So a lot of some people have fallen away. Is it a great falling away? I'd say no. No, there's been many who have fallen away, but is it a great falling away? No, I don't believe that. I believe it's a pruning before new growth. I believe that. So the hedge has been cut back, and it's about to grow again. We've seen that here in our church. And by the way, all the good churches who are getting it done, they're all growing. They're all growing. So yes, church attendance overall is going down, but Gideon's army got much smaller before the victory. And God does the same thing. does the same exact thing. Um, I think the line at this point is more so between are we going to see a short-lived Josiah's revival, which is a politically motivated revival, which we're already seeing. When you have a guy like Tucker Carlson who is sitting at the faith and family thing or whatever, talking about how he's reading the Bible for the first time in his life. He's an Episcopalian. He's like, Episcopalians don't read the Bible? <laughs> he's like, we, we, who needs the Bible? You know? He's like, we, we, we don't read the Bible. He's reading the Bible. He's already read the New Testament. And uh, he's in Leviticus now, I believe, and loving it, just gobbling it up. And you, you hear the Christian idea starting to pour out of his mouth more. And he is literally studying the Scriptures and going through the Scriptures to try to understand, okay, what is that? That's this division that I'm talking about. Episcopalians, it's easy to hang out in the middle. Yeah, yeah, we go to church. Yeah, I'm Christian, whatever. Do you even know what the Bible says? No. Okay, this happens. The division takes place, and you got a guy like that who's like, I need to read this book. I've got to read this book. Okay, the question is, why is he doing it, though? And I'm not questioning his motives, but there's many people, the reason why they are kind of transforming and going in that direction is because of the political state of our country, not because of the spiritual state of our country. And I would say that there is overlap. There's obviously overlap because we don't live in a perfectly segmented, compartmentalized world, right? The spiritual is not completely detached from the physical. The incarnation of Christ is proof of that. (laughs) The Word became flesh, right? Um, But my concern is that a lot of the returning and repenting or whatever is politically motivated. And that's that's okay as a beginning motivation, but eventually we have to graduate out of that. To the point where it's about him. (laughs) It's not about getting certain people in office, right? I think that's, that's, so here's my thing. Most Christians are mainly concerned about politics. Almost exclusively, that's almost their only concern, is politics. And what I'm saying is if you have not learned the futility of the obsession of politics at this point, then, I mean, what are you waiting for? I'm not saying don't be involved. We should be massively involved. We should be massively involved, 100%. What I'm talking is about is, where do you place it on the rank order of things that are important to you? And as long as we've got it inverted to where somehow true spirituality is further down the list than our conservatism, and conservatism just becomes an expression of Christianity, right? This idea of Christian nationalism and things like that—it's like, wait a second. That's it's, that, that's not how this country was founded. This country was founded by people who actually believed in many of the principles of Christianity. And there are people who disagree with that. But I would say you, you need to read a book. Uh, you need to read the book by uh, uh, David David Barton. You need to read David Barton's. Literally, it's a book of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of quotes from the people who wrote our founding documents, like, telling us what they believe. So you can believe the guy on YouTube. You can believe, there's a couple names I could give right now. You can believe those guys if you want, or you can believe the people's, you can believe them. You can believe the guys who explained, here's what we actually believe. And I'm not one who's very cynical about America's founding. I'm not. I don't believe that's the right conclusion from the evidence. But our nationalism was an expression of our Christianity. You can't just step in and then say, okay, we need to change the politics to save our country. It's like, you've got it backwards. So it'll be be a bottom-up, movement, is what it will be, not a top-down. And I don't expect government to get magically smaller. <laughs> don't expect it to contract. That's not what governments do. They just expand infinitely until they implode, right? And that's what ours is going to do, too, eventually. But we can stave off the catastrophe to some extent, right? And that's our responsibility. That's what we're supposed to do. And um, so I, do, I don't believe that You know, it's either catastrophe or you know, Christian nationalism. I I think maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. And it's just like when people are all calling for a stock market crash, when does it ever happen? So once the people on TV start calling for a stock market crash, they've already sold. They've already sold, and now they have short positions open hoping that you will sell. They're trying to convince you. Not them, they're trying to convince you. I showed you a story about the guy, I'll finish with this. The guy who, uh, what's his name, Ackman, Bill Ackman. Looks like he's wearing mascara and really white hair. Financial guy. How he went on—I think it was MSNBC when COVID took place—and he called in. He called in. Of course, millions of people are watching. What else did we do? We're watching cable news and we're we're counting the number of people who are dying minute by minute. Like it's very traumatic. Watching the stock market tumble. So as stocks are falling, he calls in to the show, almost crying, almost in tears, saying, "I'm just so worried, so concerned." Specifically about the hospitality industry. If I had to give out a specific company that I'm worried about, it would be Hilton. I'm really worried about Hilton. They're not going to survive, they're not going to make it. There's a lot of good people there. It's like my housekeepers and chefs and, you know, people who wash your towels, place the pen in the room because the person behind them stole the last one. It's just tough, man. It's really tough. Okay, the dude had a short position open on Hilton at the time. And as people started selling hospitality stocks, the dude made billions of dollars. And he now, I believe, I could be wrong on this, he owns a majority stake in Hilton. Okay, so he preyed upon the fears of retail investors in order to enrich himself. So by the time the catastrophe gets to you, the people who saw it coming have already prepared themselves, right? So how many times again? Bull market, bull market, bull market. Things are going up, 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 up. That means that people have their finger on the sell button, ready for you to jump in. Boom, they sell. Things are going down, down, down. It's going to be, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. They got a short position open, waiting for you to sell, so they can make a ton of money. And they're going to buy at the bottom, and you're not, right? So what I mean is the catastrophizing that we consume. We don't fully understand the motivations behind that, and we're way too. Uh, Guppy ish. I mean, we bite any, any bait. I mean, we just latch onto that thing. We're just like, I mean, obviously it's over. Obviously it's over. It's like, isn't it? So, for, I'll give you another example. I'm done. It's 1049. Um, so, when you have people telling you, hey, guys, dollar's going to collapse, dollar's going to collapse, dollar's going to collapse, dollar's going to collapse, buy silver and gold. Don't do that. Don't do that. The worst possible thing you could do if you were really worried about the end times is buy silver. It's the worst thing that you could do. So you need bullets, water, food, and maybe some coffee. Like that's what you need. So you going around, for example, if the dollar collapses, how much is your silver worth? If the basic unit of measurement that we measure all worth by collapses, how do you value your silver? You don't. But the silver salesman told you otherwise. I saw a guy who was a silver salesman. Literally like, he's, he's like, they're like, so how are you preparing for you know, the coming collapse of the U.S. dollar? It's like always coming. It's always coming. It's been coming for like a million years. You know? Still coming. Still coming. How are you preparing? He's like, I got 80% of my net worth in silver. I was like, bro, you can't eat silver. Right? You're going to be the first one to die. So what I mean is the person preying upon your fear has something to sell you. The person preying upon your fear has something to sell you. So let's not catastrophize about every little thing. Let's trust in the sovereignty of God, understanding He knows what He's doing. The separation has taken place. There's things to be concerned about, 100%. But we have to localize the problem and the solution and say, what is my personal responsibility in this thing? It is to stand for right regardless of what happens. That's my personal responsibility, and then God
0: will make the judgment when He sees fit. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, give us a five star review. Make sure that you're following the podcast and make sure to connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless.